guys. Run us, team. We're, we're getting very, there. Marathon. We're very tired. We're very Marathon. tired, and we haven't even like talked about all the fun thing. We didn't even talk about the the fun story about the Kotsky. Right? Oh That's God. Fiction. Okay. So you want to get those out of the way at the beginning? Do you want to just get fun stories out of the way? At the I, I beginning? just got to get this one for, fun story out of the well, way. Well, we've got two that we technically have to get to. Oh, okay. Remember the other one about the thought terminating and the. Oh. Yeah. Yes. We may save that for another day, but we're getting to it. Yes, we're getting to it. Okay, so anyway, um, there is a, uh, a person that messaged us, uh, and they actually were a guest star on a Proles of the Roundtable episode about eugenics. Uh, they go by Prez. Uh, yeah, no, in it's in that it, episode. Yes, it is. Hold on one sec. We're gonna we're gonna go get. We're gonna go boot do insert insert the elevator music. Yes, no, the, the, the reference, people, again, this is a, a dictate that I will bring down from on high when we have established our authoritarian uh, communist regime. Um, everyone's going by one fucking handle. You pick a handle, you stick to your handle, damn it. All this multiple handle shit just makes me confused. But in the Pearl's Discord chat, it's President of, the, of America. Um, and on yeah. Twitter, it's what? Marxy Marks 2? Marxy Marks 2. Yes, 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 yes. Had reached out to us uh, because we had been, I believe, during the, and I say believe, I know, during the crossover episode uh, with Brett and Allison on uh, on practice, we had uh, casually mentioned a, a particular Jacobin writer. Yeah, uh, uh, who, uh, Eric Blank? Sure. Um, who who happened to be trying to resurrect Kautsky. And I, yeah. I assumed that that person wasn't really a person. It was just like a, a an algorithm created them, and they were just <laughs> spitting out nom de plumes from all the fucking Jacobin pieces of shit. But no, turns out this is a real person, and uh, 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 Marxy Marx 2 and Prez knew him, um, and, and there comes this delightful yeah. exchange. So basically, uh, Prez had... Uh, had been in this uh, PhD sociology class, uh, th- and uh, this person, Eric Blank, had written a book. And the book was uh, the idea that because the Finnish revolution had worked and followed Kautsky, that Kautsky was right. And uh, so the professor, Prez, and the other uh, Marxist Leninists would constantly ask Eric Blank what happened after the revolution ended. <laughs> <laughs> At which he would get very offended. Very bright. <laughs> Yo, why does everyone want to know if it had ended? It had nothing to do with how successful it was. Yes, because resolutions are just guided on whether or not they start. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you devolve immediately into fascism. <laughs> no worries. So apparently after that, he, uh, that's when he ran off to Arizona to write a book about the t- teacher strike. Which and- has an awful time. It's just, it's a shit show. It's just, God Damn it. <laughs> it's so absurd. It's yeah. so absurd. Also, and this is a much more uh, uh, brief aside, and I apologize that we're getting all the asides out of the way a month and a half later, um, so it yeah, looks like and, we and, forgot about you people. We didn't. them at the front as, we, if they're, uh, as if they're corrections, and we usually we, just pepper them in as we, they come. We didn't forget about you. We recorded all this in the same night. And this, is, this is all dated as of August 25th, 2019, so if the revolution has kicked off and we missed it, I'm sorry, um, but we probably won't be posting anyway. Um, oh, also, we did have a correction. I forgot about this. Ah, oh, fuck. We may have to go edit this back in. Nah, we'll leave it. Um, the the Sartre 
I, I made vague references to the fact that I didn't like Sartre, uh, but I couldn't quite put my finger on why, and I didn't oh, really feel like yeah. looking it up all that bad. Uh, turns out Sartre's big problem was that he was a child molester. Um, oh, him and yeah. Simone de Beauvoir kind of had that whole fun intellectual uh, bullshit of taking on young lovers in the French sense. Um, so, yeah, my hatred of... Uh, my my hatred of of Sartre was very well placed. Go fuck yourself, Sartre. Um, but another a topic that we talk about kind of frequently enough that it's worth uh, bringing up here. Um, and Tiana from Discord brought this to our attention from Pearl's Chat Discord. Um, the 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 concept we talk about this a lot that there's like these big liberal neoliberal and and conservative there's these words that you use that basically just shut down all conversation where you can't talk about things anymore um like for the being for the troops yeah all of that kind of shit don't, don't support the troops yeah no oh it's for free oh my god you so you you support that dictator it's yeah. the, well it's happening in 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 Hong Kong right now it was going around in my office people are trying to talk about Hong Kong and they're always talking about well the the, the protesters oh so they're for democracy well fuck okay I can't say what what I can't fucking carry on a conversation now because you're saying it's for democracy so everything I say is it's bullshit I can't talk about it um, those actually have a technical term and they're called thought terminating cliches and yet it, it is almost the exclusive purview of neoliberals and conservatives and, and fucking fascists that I have found because it is almost always used to shut down debate about a thought it, it, it is not it, it, it's just goddamn garbage um, yeah. and, but they have a name and they're called thought terminating cliches and we will cite them as such. And thank you, Tiana, for pointing them out because now I go down that rabbit hole of looking them up and I hate myself for it. So thank you for bringing on extra self-loathing. <laughs> Appreciate you. In so, Hey, time. last time, last we left our delightful, uh, uh, French Algerian Martinican, uh, revolutionary. He probably wouldn't like you call him French. Uh, he probably wouldn't let me call him Martinican either. I mean, wouldn't let me call him a lot of things. Uh, last time we left Fanon, he was, uh, he had come to the conclusion that violence alone was going to free people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the only way to decolonize. But uh, how the heck do they think they're going to actually win that fight? What what gives anyone any thought that this is going to work? Yeah, David, so, take it away. Uh, it is because violence, and this is the disgraceful thing, may constitute insofar as forms part of its system the slogan of a political party. The leaders may call on the people to enter upon an armed struggle. This is problematical... This problematical question has to be thought over. When militarist Germany decides to settle its frontier disputes by force, we are not in the least surprised. But when the people of Angola, for example, decide to take up arms, when the Algerian people reject all means which are not violent, these are proofs that something has happened or is happening in this very moment. These colonized races, those slaves of modern times, are impatient. They know that this apparent folly alone can put them out of reach of colonial oppression. A new type of relations is established in the world. The underdeveloped peoples try to break their chains, and the extraordinary thing is that they succeed. It could be argued that in these days of Sputniks, it's ridiculous to die of hunger. But for the colonized masses, the argument is more down to earth. The truth is that there is no colonial power today which is capable of adopting the only form of contest which has a chance of succeeding, namely the prolonged establishment of large forces of occupation. Yeah. And that's accurate. And that's why that last sentence is so wild because it was made in 61. Yeah. This was made prior to the Vietnam War. And and that's it. The truth is there is no colonial power today which is capable of adopting the only form of contest which has a chance of succeeding. The prolonged establishment of large forces of occupation. Vietnam. Iraq. Iraq again. Libya. Syria. All of these conflicts that can't get resolved anymore are because 
colonized countries cannot anymore in the modern world place a a, a, a conquering force on a people mm-hmm. long enough to fucking quell resistance. You can't do it. It's impossible. War, this this whole concept is forever wrecked. You're not going to be able to fight wars this way anymore. So why we keep trying over and over again is kind of beyond me, except that Boeing and Blackheed Martin really need an excuse and Raytheon needs to make bombs. Like, we, we need a way to keep those guys oh, yeah. in business. But other than that, I mean... I mean, he fucking. Call, I mean, Fanon called it before the trend even began that this was not a sustainable. This was not going to work anymore. The old ways were not going to function. As far as the internal situation is concerned, the col- colonialist countries find themselves faced with contradictions in the form of working class demands, which necessitate the use of their police forces. As well, in the present international situation, these countries need their troops to protect their regimes. Finally, there is the well-known myth of liberating movements directed from Moscow. In the regime's panic-stricken reasoning, this signifies if that goes on, there is a risk that the communists will turn their troubles to account and infiltrate into these parts. Now, needs to be said, Moscow, at this point, was being led by Khrushchev. Yeah. So any criticism of the USSR is probably okay, because Khrushchev's a dick. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's still the same mass of people. And and this is where, you know, I mean, Fanon, for one thing, doesn't isn't necessarily always right, but also is probably right in this sense. And uh, and presents a dialectic that he won't call a dialectic is you know the USSR and and he mentioned earlier you know Khrushchev is the one calling out the capitalists as as the enemies of these people but I don't think he's mentioned it yet I don't think he's mentioned it it's coming it's coming okay but at the same time you know I mean the idea that like Moscow comes around and just liberates you aha you know instead of you doing it yourself that that doesn't make sense you have to liberate yourself you can't just have a different power come do it um. Hmm. What's hmm? I and and I think I'm trying to think if I'm reading that wrong. I'm actually trying to wonder if we're reading that incorrectly. Oh. Um. So finally, there is the well-known myth of liberating movements directed from Moscow. Is that saying? Oh, the scaremongering, the communists. Yes, I you think know what that probably that, is that. I think it's that. I think it's the concept that they that it's secretly there, and you know what we deal actually that's that's good that's that because we deal with that today, right? Yeah, like the Syria, you know, liberating itself from the U.S. forces coming in. Oh well, now you're just being Putin's puppet. You're yeah. just doing what Russia. They've wants. been doing it all the time, but no, I think that's exactly what that is. Is that yeah. it, it's okay. that that all of these things are being started from the Kremlin. It's not the concept that people could possibly want to liberate themselves without some fo- nefarious foreign intervention. Like that's insane. How dare they? Yeah. But um, it, it is kind of funny that they still use Russia. Oh no. It's always Russia. Yeah. It's never stopped being Russia. Like, yeah. since the 40s, it's Russia, and it's never stopped. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, okay. Okay, good. So, that, I, that I think, more in line. That's good. That's okay. less harder to reconcile then. <laughs> um, and what's important about this is how easy it is to reconcile, not how much we need to learn. God but damn it. Okay. I just want to write. If that goes on, <laughs> there is a risk that the communists will turn the troubles to account and infiltrate into these parts. Yeah. There it is. So, if that... So, basically, the... the it's a red scare thing. It's exactly that. It's the concept that we have to... We can't have this decolonization going... These rebels... The red then menace Mo- will get us. Domino effect, baby. Yeah. Coming in and, and Moscow's going to turn them into darn communists. Like, yeah. As opposed to, what, you coming in and turning them into fucking capitalists? Like, what's the fucking difference here, guys? Come on. (laughs) Whatever. In the native's eagerness, the fact that he openly brandishes the threat of violence and proves that he is conscious of the unusual character of the contemporary situation and that he means to profit by it, but still on the level of immediate experience, the native who has seen the modern world penetrate into the furthermost corners of the bush is most active 
acutely aware of all the things he does not possess. The masses, by a sort of, if we may say so, childlike process of reasoning, convince themselves that they have been robbed of all these things. That is why in certain underdeveloped countries, the masses forge ahead very quickly and realize two or three years after independence that they have been frustrated that it wasn't worthwhile, fighting and that nothing could really change. In 1789, after the bourgeois revolution, the smallest French peasants benefited substantially from the upheaval. But it is a co- but it is commonplace to observe and to say in the majority of cases, for 95% of the population of underdeveloped countries, independence brings no immediate change. The enlightened observer takes note of the existence of a kind of masked discontent, like the smoking ashes of a burnt-down house after the fire has been put out, which still threaten to burst into flames again. So they say that the natives want to go too quickly. Now let us never forget that only a very short time ago they complained of our slowness, their laziness, <laughs> and their fatalism. Again, this is just like the, the lazy versus the love to work as a slave uh, thing. It, don't. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it just flips whatever uh, they want. Fuck it, you, Joseph Smith. It flips whatever you want. Uh, already we see that the violence used in specific ways at the moment of their struggle for freedom does not magically disappear after the ceremony of trooping the national colors. It is all the less reason for disappearing since the reconstruction of the nation continues within the framework of cutthroat competition between capitalism and socialism. This competition gives an almost universal dimension to even the most localized demands. Every meeting held, every act of suppression, repression committed, reverberates in the inter- international arena. The murders of Sharpville shook public opinion for months, and the newspapers over the wavelengths and private conversations, Sharpville has become a symbol. It was through Sharpville that men and women first became acquainted with the problem of apartheid in South Africa. Moreover, we cannot believe that demagogy alone is the explanation for the sudden interest the big parties show in the petty affairs of underdeveloped region. Each jacquerie, each act of sedition in the third world, makes up part of the picture framed by the Cold War. Two men are beaten up in Salisbury, and at once the whole block goes into action, talks about those two men, and uses beating up incident to bring up a particular problem in Rhodesia, linking it moreover to the whole African question and the whole question of colonized people. The other block, however, is equally concerned in measuring by the magnitude of the campaign the local weaknesses of its system. Thus the colonized people realize that neither clan remains outside local incidents. They no longer limit themselves to regional horizons, for they have caught on to the fact they live in an atmosphere of international stress. When every three months or so we hear that the 6th or 7th fleet is moving towards such and such a coast, when Khrushchev threatens to come to Castro's aid with rockets, when Kennedy decides upon some desperate solution for the Laos question, when the colonized person or the newly independent native has the impression that whether he wills it or not, he is being carried away in a kind of frantic cavalcade. In fact, he is marching in it already. Let us take, for example, the case of the governments of recently liberated countries. The men at the head of affairs spend two-thirds of their time in watching the approaches and trying to anticipate the dangers which threaten them, and the remaining one-third of their time in working for their country. At the same time, they search for allies, obedient to the same dialectic. The national parties of opposition leave the paths of parliamentary behavior. They also look for allies to support them in their ruthless venture into sedition. The atmosphere of violence, after having colored all the colonial phase continues to dominate national life. For as we have already said, the third world is not cut off from the rest. Quite the contrary. It is at the middle of the whirlpool. This is why the statesmen of underdeveloped countries keep up indefinitely the tone of aggressiveness and exasperation in their public speeches, which in the normal way ought to have disappeared. 
Herein also may be found for reasons that lack of politeness so often spoken of in connection with newly established rulers. Oh, they're not being, they're not following the, the, the fun. What's the, oh, uh, oh, Jesus. Who is the Palestinian leader in the nineties? Oh, oh, um, um, oh my God. Jesus Christ. Uh, Masar Arafat? Yeah, yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. Ar- Arafat's demanding violence against the yeah. Israelis. And, it, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, discourtesy is first and foremost a manner to be used in dealings with the others, with the former colonists who come to observe and to investigate. The quote-unquote ex-native too often gets the impression that these reports are already written. The photos which illustrate the article are simply a proof that one knows what one is talking about and that one has visited the country. The report intends to verify the evidence. Everything's going badly out there since we left. Frequently, reporters complain of being badly received, of being forced to work under bad conditions, and of being fenced around by indifference or hostility. All this is quite normal. The nationalist leaders know that international opinion is formed solely by the Western press. Now, when a journalist from the West asks us questions, it is seldom in order to help us. In the Algerian war, for example, even the most liberal of French reporters never ceased to use ambiguous terms in describing our struggle. Bullet leaves man's gun and finds other back of man's head. Cause unknown. Um... (laughs) When we reproached them for this, they replied in all good faith that they were being objective. For the native objectively is always directed against him. We may in the same way come to understand the new tone which swamped international diplomacy at the United Nations General Assembly in September 1960. The representatives of the colonial countries were aggressive and violent and carried things to extremes. But the colonial peoples did not find that they exaggerated. The radicalism of the African spokesman brought the abbess abscess to a head and showed up in the inadmissible nature of the veto and of the dialogue between the great powers and above all the tiny role reserved for the third world. Yeah. And, and some of that is, is talking about how, I mean, how the UN still works today. There are what, six countries that have a veto. It's the U S Russia, China, China might be one, France, France. England. Feels like Germany should have one. And I think Germany is the other one, yeah. The, isn't it the Security Council that gets it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, you also notice this, and this is almost a paragraph that needs to be, like, thrown in the face of every NPR listener in the God's green earth. It's, yeah. You know, the nationalist leaders know the international opinion is formed solely by the Western press. You know, and, and now when we ask uh, the journals from the West questions us, it's seldom in order to help us. Even the most liberal reporters never cease to use ambiguous terms. It's all fucking propaganda. And it's being called out right here in the 60s by Fanon. Permanent members. China, France, Russia, UK, United States. Okay, so everyone... Non-permanent members. Belgium, Dominican Republic, Equatorial Guinea, Germany, Indonesia, Ivory Coast, Kuwait, Peru, Poland, and South Africa. I think those rotate. Ah, okay. I think they like rotate through to give everyone a chance. Gotcha. Yep. The Security Council consists of 15 members, the great powers that were the victors of World War II. Interesting. (laughs) I guess that's why Germany's not on there. Interesting. Uh, But yeah, I'm trying to figure out how China got involved. Um. Ousting Japan off their land. Apparently, it just says the Republic of China now represents the People's Republic of China. In the I'm United not States. complaining about that. I'm not either. Are, they, are you kidding me? Are you <laughs> joking? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
Oh my god! But yeah, uh, yeah. Apparently, yeah. Ten non-permanent elected on a regional basis to serve a two terms. The body's presidency rotates monthly. Yeah. So basically, you vote for the other people that are going to sit on that council and have no purpose because it's only a pissing match between the U.S. and China and Russia. Yeah, pretty well. Uh, diplomacy, as inaugurated by the newly independent peoples, is no longer an affair of nuances, of implications, of hypnotic passes. For the nation's spokesmen are responsible at one and the same time for safeguarding the unity of a nation, the progress of the masses towards the state, and the well-being of the right of all peoples to bread and liberty. Thus, it is a diplomacy which never stops moving, a diplomacy which leaps... Ahead. Ahead. Hold in up. strange contrast to the motionless, petrified world. world of colonization. Thank you. And when Mr. Khrushchev brandishes his shoe at the United Nations or thumps the table with it, there's not a single ex-native nor any representative of any underdeveloped country who laughs. For what Mr. Khrushchev shows, the colonized countries which are looking on, is that he, the Mujik who moreover is the possessor of space rockets, <laughs> treats these miserable capitalists in the way that they deserve. <laughs> in the same way Castro is sitting in military uniform in the United Nations organization does not scandalize the underdeveloped countries. What Castro demonstrates is the consciousness he has of the continuing existence of the rule of violence. The astonishing thing is that he did not come to the UNO with a machine gun, but if he had, <laughs> what Eddie would have minded. All the jacquerie and desperate deeds, all those bands armed with cutlasses, or axes find their nationality in the implacable struggle which opposes sh- socialism and capitalism. That is so fucking good. And that's yes. such a good, that's such a great fuck the Khrushchev shit, but god did the Castro. Well, I, okay. Among among leaders, Khrushchev was I, all the anti-Stalinism, all the attempt to liberalism, just a bitch. But on, on the world stage, on the world stage, he was still trying to do the best. He still believed in socialism. And on the world stage, he stood for the USSR and colonized peoples. So I'm not going to go that hard against okay. Khrushchev. Okay, hold on. Now, now that's fine. Brezhnev, Brezhnev, Stalin was a million that's fine. I'm sorry. Now say all I, those things to tiny no, Stalin. No, say them to no, tiny Stalin. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uncle that's Joe. right. That's right. I'm sorry, Tiny Joe. You didn't have to hear that. Um, but no, but no, the Castro sitting, Castro sitting in a military uniform and then thinking, but just phenomenal, just so well articulating. Yeah, because he knew, because he, he was at war. He was always at war. He was constantly at war. There was no time for Castro to fucking put on a yeah. suit and relax. He was 50 miles off the coast of the biggest imperialist power the world has ever seen. Are you kidding me? The guy, I love it. The guy should have gone in strapped and ready to go like a fucking Black Panther. Like, just yeah. get to it. Ugh. In 1945, the 45,000 dead at Satif could pass unnoticed. In 1947, the 90,000 dead in Madagascar could be used as the subject of a simple paragraph in the papers. In 1952, the 200,000 victims of the repression in Kenya could meet with relative indifference. This was because the international contradictions were not sufficiently distinct. Already, the Korean and Indo-Chinese wars had begun a new phase. But it is above all Budapest and Suez which constitute the decisive moments of this confrontation. Strengthened by the unconditional support of the socialist countries, the colonist peoples fling themselves with whatever arms they have against the impregnable citadel of colonialism. If this citadel is invulnerable to knives and naked fists, it is no longer so when we decide to take into account the context of the Cold War. In this fresh juncture, whoop, I overscrolled, hold on. <laughs> In this fresh juncture, the Americans take their role of patron of international capitalism very seriously. 
Early on, they advise the European countries to decolonize in a friendly fashion. Later on, they do not hesitate to proclaim first the respect for and then the support of the principle of Africa for the Africans. So basically, I mean, obviously, they're bullshitting yet. Yeah. Uh, the United States is not afraid today of stating officially that they are the defender of the right of all people to self-determination. I quit. Fuck off. Mr. Men and Williams' last journey is the only illustration of consciousness with the America, which the Americans have had that the third world ought to not be sacrificed. From then on, we understand why the violence of the native is only hopeless if we compare it to the abstract to the military machine of the oppressor. On the other hand, if we situate that violence in the dynamics of the international situation, we see that once that disturbance unbalanced the colony's economic... Or blah, blah, once that it constitutes a terrible menace for the oppressor, persistent jockeries and mau-mau disturbance unbalanced the colony's economic life, but do not endanger the mother country. What is more important in the eyes of imperialism is the opportunity for socialist propaganda to infiltrate among the masses and to contaminate them. This is already a serious danger in the Cold War, but what would happen to that colony in the case of a real war, riddled as it is by murderous guerrillas? <laughs> Good question. Thus, capitalism realizes that its military strategy has everything to lose by the outbreak of nationalist wars. Again, within the framework of peaceful coexistence, all colonies are destined to disappear. And in the long run, neutralism is destined to be respected by capitalism. What must at all costs be avoided is strategic insecurity. The breakthrough of enemy doctrine into the masses and the deep-rooted hatred of millions of men. The colonized people are very well aware of these imperatives which rule international political life. For this reason, even though those who thunder denunciations of violence take their decisions and acts in terms of this universal violence. Today, peaceful coexistence between the two blocks provokes and feeds violence in the colonial countries. Tomorrow, perhaps, we shall see the lifting of that violence after the complete liberation of the colonial territories. Well, still waiting. Perhaps we will see the question of minorities cropping up. Already, certain minority groups do not hesitate to preach violent methods for resolving their problems, and that is not by chance, so the story runs, that in consequence, small and extremists in the United States organize a militia and arm themselves. Black Panthers. It is not... Actually, were the Panthers... This was before the This was before the Panthers. This is just talking about, again, you know, people... People... uh, This is talking about, like, um, I guess... God, I can't think of the names of all these groups now. Um, God, but this is... This is all the the uh, groups that were coming up in the actual civil rights movement that we get dusted aside and only told about MLK and Malcolm X. Um, God, I can't think of any of the names now. I mean, it's not Nation of Islam, is it? Uh, Nation of Islam existed then. I mean, it did. It definitely did because it, it. I mean, it took up MLK or it took up uh, Malcolm for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there was a few organizations. I mean, they're all. Um, yeah. But I mean, this is this is talking about not necessarily Black Panthers, but Word. stuff that predecessors before it, the actual civil rights movement. Yeah, the actual violent civil rights movement that no one wants to admit happened. Yeah. It is not by chance either that in the so-called free world there exist committees for the defense of Jewish minorities in the USSR. Nor an accident if General de Gaulle, in one of his orations, sheds tears over the millions of Muslims oppressed by communist dictatorship. I'm getting a very weird your Muslim vibe right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. It's I'm getting like, a very strong vibe. Uh, and that's what he said. It's not by chance. I'm it's, sh- 
It's not a coincidence. It's not. It's not. It's very strategic. Both capitalism and imperialism are convinced that the struggle against racialism and the movements towards national freedom are purely and simply directed by remote control, fomented from the outside. So they decide to use that very efficacious tactic, the Radio Free Europe station, voice of the committee for the aid of overruled minorities. They practice anti-colonialism, as did the French colonels in Algeria when they carried on subversive warfare with the SAS, which is the Section Administrative Special, was an officer corps whose task was specifically to strengthen contact with Algerians in non-military matters. It was the CIA. Um, or their psychological services. They use the people against the people. We have seen what the results. Yeah, so he's explicitly calling out the CIA. He called out Radio Free Asia, which, I mean, just on the button. I mean, you call uh, it Radio Free Europe. Or Radio Free Europe. Tomato, tomato. Of course, there's Radio Free Asia and Radio Free, you know, all kinds of spinoffs. They're all NED-funded um, outlets to, to spread CIA propaganda. I just imagine there's, there's a, a Radio Free bullshit. Antarctica that's just telling them that they're not melting, that there's no there's no global warming, <laughs> climate change isn't happening. Just, I just imagine it's there. You got you got to cover your bases. Yeah, you got you to do a little bit of everything. So, I mean, but he's calling out that exclusive bullshit. He's calling out all the propaganda. You know, he's saying, oh, it's it's amazing how there's all these committees in the free world to say how it's really it's really the USSR that's that's oppressing Jews. Like, oh, yeah, the, the country that was formed from overturning the pogroms that liberated the world from the Nazis. They're, they're the ones oppressing Jews. And, of course, you know, how it's the communists oppressing Muslims, even though communism was spread well across the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, there's communist regions in China who are very supportive of communism. You know, it's it's he's calling their bullshit. He's, he is very he's straight much. up calling their bullshit. And yeah, I mean, we should we should see that and and think of the Uyghur. It's pronounced Uyghur. We were corrected, but I guess I still am going to go back to calling it Uyghur just so people can read it and go, oh, that's that's what he's talking about. Um, but you know, you can see it with the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. You can see it uh, with, of course, you know, the Hong Kong protests and and you know that's not and a, the a Venezuelans moment. that are not really Venezuelans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, they're ta- there's propaganda saying that Venezuela is bad to indigenous people. Yeah. It's a colonizer against indigenous people. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you know how much indigenous people support the Venezuelan government and how many jumps they've they've made for Venezuela? Look at rights? the marches for, like, Guadalajara, and then look at the marches for Maduro. <laughs> and see which one looks like it might be a slight, a little bit more indigenous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to notice... Two, two color-related things with each march. Okay. The Guaido marches will be dressed in yellow and will be very pale skin. <laughs> and the Maduro marches will be dressed in red and they'll be very dark skin. Weird. Weird coincidence. This atmosphere of violence and menaces, these rockets brandished by both sides, do not frighten nor deflect the colonized peoples. We have seen that all their recent history has prepared them to understand and grasp the situation. But between the violence of the colonies and that peaceful violence that the world is steeped in, there is a kind of complicit agreement, a sort of homogeneity. The colonized peoples are well adapted to this atmosphere, for once they are up to date, sometimes people wonder what the native rather than rather than give his wife a dress, buys instead a transistor radio. There is no reason to be astonished. The natives are convinced that their fate is in the balance, here and now. They live in the atmosphere of doomsday, and they consider that nothing ought to be let pass unnoticed. That is why they understand very well Fuoma and Fumi, Lumamba and Toshimi, Ahido and Moumi, Kenyatta, and the men who are pushed towards right to forward regularly to replace him. Holy shit, if I got through half of okay, that. Okay, okay, so 
I, I can at least tell you Please. that Lamamba uh-huh. and Toshombi is Patrice Lamamba and the Congo. Okay. And the the coup Toshombi, the American puppet leader there. Okay. I don't know some of these other names, but these are coup leaders in Africa. Okay, as long as I came close to pronouncing half of them close, I'm good. They understand all these figures very well, for they can unmask the forces working behind them. The natives and the underdeveloped man are today political animals in the most universal sense of the word. But Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week. Oh no! no. Oh, you know you missed it. You know you wanted it. You've been crazy. The people have been craving it. um, Is what I found, and that's what I was told. Um, And uh, this Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week is brought to you by. They live in an atmosphere of doomsday. Oh God! Uh, There was a report this week in the Wall Street Journal. Lament. I, I'm going to say lamenting because it feels like it was. Uh, the decrease in doomsday preppers. Doomsday preppers have been precipitously falling since the election in 2016. Because as it turns out, doomsday prepping is almost exclusively a right-wing ideology that is fueled by just fear. It's nothing but fear-based, and they were terrified, I guess, that the, the the black man was going to do bad things to them. I don't fully understand it, but all I know is they're very upset that since Trump took over, apparently all these people are no longer worried that doomsday is coming. So the grand irony that the closer we are actually pushed to a doomsday scenario, the doomsday preppers have stopped prepping is very fun to me. This has been your Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week. Oh, oh God. Okay, uh, and uh, Tashombe is, uh, his first name is Moise. Moise Tashombe. So, it's uh, who displaced Patrice Lumumba. Oh, okay. It is true to say that independence has brought moral compensation to the colonized peoples and has established their dignity, but they have not yet had time to elaborate a society or to build upon and affirm values. The warming, light-giving center where man and citizen develop and enrich their experience in wider and still wider fields does not yet exist. Set in a kind of irresolution, such men persuade themselves fairly easily that everything is going to be decided elsewhere. For everybody at the same time, as for the political leaders, when faced with this situation, they first hesitate and then choose neutralism. There is plenty to be said on the subject of neutralism, you don't say. Say it! Some equate it with the sort of tainted mercantilism, which consists of taking what it can from both sides. In fact, neutralism, a state of affairs created by the Cold War, if it allows underdeveloped countries to receive economic help from both sides, does not allow either party to aid underdeveloped areas to the extent that is necessary. Those literally astronomical sums of money which are invested in military research, Mm -hmm. those engineers who are transformed into technicians of nuclear war, could in the space of 15 years raise the standard of living of underdeveloped countries by 60%. No idea where you get that number, but I agree with it. Okay. So we see that the true interests of underdeveloped countries do not lie in the protraction nor in the accentuation of this Cold War, but it so happens that no one asks their advice. Therefore, when they can, they cut loose from it. But can they really remain outside it at the very moment France is trying to get her atomic bombs in Africa? Apart from the passing motions... France is trying out her atomic bombs Oh, trying out her atomic bombs. Apart from the passing motions, the holding of meetings and the shattering of diplomatic relations, we cannot say that the people of Africa have had much influence in this particular sector on France's attitude. Neutralism produces in the citizen of the third world a state of mind which is expressed in everyday life by a fearlessness and an ancestral pride strangely resembling defiance. The flagrant refusal to compromise and the tough will that sets itself against getting tied up are reminiscent of the behavior of proud, poverty-stricken adolescents who are always ready to risk their necks in order to have the last word. 
All this leaves Western observers dumbfounded. For to tell the truth, there is a glaring divergence between what these men claim to be and what they have behind them. These countries without tramways, without troops, without money, have no justification for their bravado that they display in broad daylight. Undoubtedly, they are imposters. The third world often gives the impression that it rejoices in sensation and that it must have its weekly dose of crises. These men at the head of empty countries who talk too loud are most irritating. You'd like to shut them up, but on the contrary, they are in great demand. They are given bouquets. They are invited to dinners. In fact, we quarrel over who shall have them. And this is neutralism. They are 98% illiterate, but they are the subject of a huge body of literature. They travel a great deal. The governing classes and students of underdeveloped countries are gold mines for airline companies. African and Asian officials may in the same month follow a course on socialist planning in Moscow and one on the advantages of the liberal economy in London or at Columbia University. African trade union leaders leap ahead at a great rate in their own field. Hardly have they been appointed to post in managerial organizations than they decide to form themselves into autonomous bodies. They haven't the requisite 50 years of practical trade unionism in the framework of an industrial country, but they already know that non-political trade unionism doesn't make any sense. They haven't come to grips with the bourgeois machine, nor developed their consciousness in the class struggle. But perhaps this isn't necessary. Perhaps... We shall see that this will to some every we sh- shall see that this will to some everything up, which characters itself often in the facsimile inter- in facile internationalism is one of the most fundamental characteristics of underdeveloped countries. Let us return to considering the single combat between the native and the settler. We have seen that it takes the form of an armed and open struggle. There is no lack of historical examples: Indochina, Indonesia, and of course North Africa. But we must not let lose sight of it this is of is that the struggle could have broken out anywhere in guinea as well as somalia land and moreover today it could break out at every place where colonialism means to stay on angola for example the existence of an armed struggle shows that the people are decided to trust the violent methods only he he of whom they have never stopped saying and the only language he understands is that of force decides to give utterance by force in fact as always the settlers shown him the way he should take if he is to become free the argument the native chooses has been furnished by the settler and by an ironic turning of the tables it is the native who now affirms that colonialist understands nothing but force the colonial regime owes its legitimacy to force and at no time tries to hide this aspect of things every statue whether of Fadir Bay or of Layout, some last name. Got of, it. Nothing. Yeah. Nope. Of Bugot, of some French assholes. Uh, all these con- conquistadors perched on c- uh, colonial soil do not cease from proclaiming one and the same. We are here by the force of bayonets. The sentence is easily completed. During the phase of insurrection, each settler's reasons on the basis is simple arithmetic. This logic does not surprise the other settlers, but it is important to point out that it does not surprise the natives either. To begin with, the affirmation on the principle, it's them or us, does not constitute a paradox, since colonialism, as we have seen, is in fact the organization of a Manichian world, a world divided up into compartments. And when in laying down precise methods, the settler asks each member of the oppressing minority to shoot down 30 or 100 or 200 natives, he sees that nobody shows any indignation and that the whole problem is to decide whether it can be done all at once or by stages. This chain of reasoning, which presumes very arithmetically 
the disappearance of the colonized people does not leave the native overcome with moral indignation. He has always known that his duel with the settler would take place in the arena. The native loses no time in lamentations, and he hardly ever seeks for justice in the colonial framework. The fact is that if the settler's logic leaves the native unshaken, it is because the latter has practically stated the problem of his liberation in identical terms. We must form ourselves into groups of 200 or 500, and each must deal with a settler. It is in this manner of thinking that each of the protagonists begins the struggle. Mm-hmm. For the native, this violence represents the absolute line of action. The militant, the militant is also a man who works. The questions that the organization asks the militant bear the mark of this way of looking at things. Where have you worked? With whom? What have you accomplished? The group requires that each individual perform an irreclable action. In Algeria, for example, there are almost all men who have called on the people to join in the national struggle, were condemned to death or searched for by the French police. Confidence was proportional to the hopelessness of each case. You could be sure of a new recruit when he could no longer go back into the colonial system. This mechanism, it seems, has existed in Kenya among the Mau Mau, who require that each member of the group should strike a blow at the victim, each one thus personally responsible for the death of that victim. To work means to work at the death of the settler. This assumed responsibility for violence allows both strayed and outlawed members of the group to come back again and find their place once more. To become integrated, violence is thus seen as char- comparable to a royal pardon. The colonized man finds his freedom in through violence. This rule of conduct enlightens the agent because it indicates to him the means to the end. And that is where we are going to end yeah, this we're not section because say, we are sir. absolutely not getting it. There is one thing and one thing only that we are skipping in on uh, violence, and it is a subsection of a of a poem of a play by uh, by Césaire, who we talked about at the beginning. Uh, Fanon idolized and tried to run his campaign. Uh, he had a, he was very very into Césaire. It's the same way that Marx kind of had to have his homage to Hegel, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, this does not progress anything at all. If you want to no. go read it, it's called the uh, uh, the Rebel. I think it's called. Yeah. Uh, which I immediately thought was the uh, Camus piece, the Rebel, and I freaked out and was like, Oh God, no! <laughs> uh, but no, we're good. We're good. Uh, we're we're fine. Uh, we don't have to do that. But that being said, um, me and David are both going to uh, both. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to take a long. I'm going to take a long nap. That was it's 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 almost nine o'clock, and I'm da, saying nap. I, didn't I don't. Just go I don't. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm so die. tired. I can't even figure out like, that it's time to go. To it bed. was like five hours of podcasting. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of podcasting. Um, yeah. So yet yeah, our mental uh, our mental health is is shaken, but hopefully your understanding of wretched of the earth is advanced. That being said, we will see you. I don't know, in a fucking month or so to fucking finish this goddamn <laughs> chapter. <laughs> Bye! Bye! <laughs>